Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. During my first year in seminary, I was asked to preach at a little church in a town called Aubrey, Texas. Aubrey is about 45 miles north of Dallas, where I was living at the time. Now, if you don't know anything about seminary students, um, you may not know that they are kind of the worst. And I can say that because I was absolutely the worst during my first couple of years at Dallas Theological Seminary. I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Bible and about God and Christianity, and I believed it was my job to educate everyone else so that they could get up to my level as well. And that's what I did during my first sermon at that little church in Aubrey, Texas. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, I preached for almost an hour that morning. I was asked to preach for 30 minutes, but I preached for an hour. It's just 30 minutes was stifling. You know, I couldn't get across everything I needed to get across in only 30 minutes. So I went ahead and made the executive decision to go an hour. I used 18 passages of scripture. Now, not 18 verses, 18 different collections of verses from all over the Old and New Testament. My sermon had 10 main points, 10 main points. Today, I understand just how oxymoronic that was and just how plain moronic I was. But back then, I thought more points equaled more knowledge that I was able to impart on everyone else. And better still, each main point actually had two sub points. And I threw in a few conclusion points just for good measure. I went back and looked this week. All in all, in that sermon, I had 27 different points. 27. Just for reference sake, today, and usually, usually in a message that I teach at Restore, I have one. Back then it was 27, today is one. That morning in Aubrey, Texas, I began my sermon with this statement. In order to share, defend, and prove our faith, we must have a solid doctrinal foundation. Now, do you know why I said that? Because I believed it. With my whole heart, I believed that following Jesus meant understanding as much as we possibly could about God, about Christianity, and about the Bible. To me, being a good Christian was about how much you knew. I thought the job of a pastor was to help people accumulate as much knowledge as possible so that they could have a strong faith. But I've come to know through experience and through just the sweet mercy of Jesus that that isn't true. You see, some of the strongest faith I've ever encountered is simple. Some of the folks who follow Jesus the most wholeheartedly are the least concerned about accumulating more knowledge. That's why this year in the life of Jesus we are walking through is so important. Because when we dive deeply into the life and work of Jesus, we see that he didn't come just to impart a bunch of knowledge. He came to show us how to live. He came to show us what he called the way. Did you know that early church members were actually called followers of the way before they were ever called Christians? 
A man named Saul used to hunt down followers of the way, arrest them, and even kill them. The book of Acts tells us that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. But after Saul had this radical encounter with Jesus, he changed his name to Paul and begins to follow the way himself, planting churches and sharing the ways of Jesus with everyone he encountered. Most scholars believe early Christians called themselves followers of the way because of Jesus' famous statement in John's account of his life, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. This morning, we conclude our teaching series on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this sermon, and really throughout his entire life, Jesus compares and contrasts two different ways of living, the way of Jesus or the way of anything else, the way of Jesus or the way of anything else. Now, I know that might sound harsh and maybe even somewhat exclusive, but Scripture consistently teaches that these two ways are a true dichotomy. You see, we're either relying on the Spirit of God to lead us in the way of Jesus, or we are not. There is really no third option there. Moses laid the two ways before God's people in the Old Testament. He said, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. Jesus says that one way is rooted in him and the other way is actually rooted in evil. One way leads to life and the other way leads to death. In John 10.10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Scripture uses various analogies to explain the differences between the two ways. We've actually talked about a lot of them throughout our year in the life of Jesus. Things like the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, true faith versus oppressive religion, the spirit versus the flesh, the gospel of Jesus Christ versus the gospel of Caesar Augustus, and many more. But regardless of which analogy is used, it all all boils down to this singular choice between the way of Jesus and the way of anything else. Jesus knew this, right? That's why he spent his entire life on earth doing two things, teaching people the way of Jesus and showing people the way of Jesus. We actually use these two facets of Jesus's life to divide up a large part of our year in the life of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount series that we're in now is centered around Jesus' longest and most in-depth teaching about his way. And then we'll begin 2021 with a new series centered around Jesus showing people the way, demonstrating it through everything from huge miracles with big crowds to small interactions with everyday people. But We cannot skip over this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. It is so vital, especially as we prepare to transition from Jesus teaching about the way to demonstrating it. Because this passage is a call to action. Jesus uses three quick-hitting metaphors in order to really stress the seriousness of putting this message into practice. We're going to walk through them together. But before we do... I need to make a couple of important observations about this text, these 
Bible verses we're about to look at. So first, these statements that we're going to read have sometimes been used to scare people into following religious leaders or religious rules. Now, that is not only wrong. We'll quickly see it's the opposite of what Jesus is actually doing here. And number two, these verses have sometimes been used to scare people about the afterlife. Things like heaven, hell, and eternal judgment. That's simply bad Bible teaching. Jesus is contrasting metaphors like fire and destruction with life and the kingdom of heaven to emphasize his point that the way of Jesus leads to full life and the way of anything else leads to life marked by pain and disappointment and destruction. As an aside, two years ago, I taught an entire series called Heaven, Hell, and Other Things We Don't Understand Very Well. So if you'd like to explore what scripture does teach about those things, you can check it out on YouTube or Vimeo or our podcast. But with that said... Let's jump in to these three quick-hitting metaphors and find out why Jesus is so serious about calling us to follow his way of living. Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So the first thing that Jesus points out is that his way of living is rarely popular and almost always countercultural. In this metaphor about narrow and wide gates, Jesus is actually contrasting his way with the way of the first century religious leaders. See, they were all about personal piety and external, um, external appearances, the way they looked to other people, the, what people thought about them. But the way of Jesus is all about internal transformation that leads to these external actions of love and sacrifice and service. That's the first one. He continues with the second metaphor, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, again, he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The way of Jesus produces good things, and the way of anything else produces bad things. That, Jesus says, is how we are to discern wolves from sheep and false teachers from true teachers. Now, there's a whole lot of bad religion being practiced right now by bad religious leaders, both during the time of Jesus and in our present day today. One of the problems is that these bad religious leaders often use persuasive religious language and have a whole lot of worldly success, meaning they quote Bible verses, they have large followings, and they make a lot of money. But Jesus says those things are not the measuring stick we should use to make discernments. Instead, we are to look at their fruit. So what is the fruit? Scripture says that the fruit of the way of Jesus is called the fruit of the Spirit. And it's simply love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, Rather than asking if a particular religious leader or religious practice is, quote, successful, we should be asking, does this person or practice manifest love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If the answer is no, it's simply not the way of Jesus. 
no matter how many followers it has or how much money it makes. Jesus expounds upon this idea even more with his final metaphor, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and in your name even perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Again, simply claiming to be a Christian and performing religious demonstrations is not the barometer for the way of Jesus. Just turn on TBN today. You will see preachers using Christian language and claiming to heal people right there on TV. And you can experience that healing too, just three easy payments of $39.99. You get that holy water mailed directly to your house. Those folks might be saying, Lord, Lord. They might even be performing miracles, but they're not following the way of Jesus because the way of Jesus is not about exploiting people to make money. It's about living a life of generosity. Hop on Twitter. You will see pastors using Bible verses to claim that people of color are inferior to white people and that women are inferior to men. They might be saying, Lord, Lord, and teaching in Jesus' name, but these folks are not following the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is not about oppressing people to gain power. It's about using whatever power we do have to lift others up. Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By the way, people exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We will know if they are following the way of Jesus or if they are not. Because here's the thing, the way of Jesus is so much more than something you believe. It's something that you do. Don't miss this. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is not something that we just intellectually assent to. It's a whole new way of living life. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to get across in this passage we just looked at. So he concludes this Sermon on the Mount, his longest and most important teaching by telling his audience that retaining all the information in the sermon is not what he's concerned about. They can understand it completely, believe everything he said is true, even learn it so well that they can start teaching it to other people. But if they don't put it into practice, nothing else matters. Jesus didn't come to impart a bunch of knowledge. He came to teach us how to live he came to show us the way of Jesus, the way to love God and love our neighbor, the way to depend on the Holy Spirit and to see its fruit manifest in our lives, the way to care for the hurting and the needy among us, the way to fight for justice and fight against oppression. This is why when Jesus recruits his disciples, he doesn't say, know me or understand me or learn about me. What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus' point here. What we believe matters tremendously because our actions should flow out of our beliefs. That's why Jesus spends so much of his time teaching. But if our beliefs about Jesus don't cause us to follow the way of Jesus, then those beliefs are empty. The Apostle Paul knew this better than anyone. He had such a radical experience with the love of Jesus that he went from killing followers of the way to laying his own life down for Christ. 
in his letter to the church he helped start in Corinth, he simply says, y'all, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I added the y'all, you know, for effect. James, the brother of Jesus, says it similarly. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. Jesus doesn't say you'll know them by their knowledge. He doesn't say you'll know them by how much Bible they can quote, how many followers they have, how much money's in their bank account. He says you will know them by the fruit that their lives produce. Pastor and author Jared Bias wrote a great book about this called Love Matters More. And he says, I don't see a lot of evidence for what we believe mattering much in the Bible except in how it impacts the way we live our lives. People often get confused because the word believe in English has come to mean something like think a thought. But that word in the Greek is from the same root where we get the word faith. And it means to trust. It means to trust. You see, believing in Jesus means following the way of Jesus. To believe in him is to trust him with our whole lives. And this really, really matters. The stakes here are incredibly high. Because listen, calling yourself a Christian without any attempt to follow the way of Jesus has devastating effects. Devastating effects. It is a widespread problem in our world today, and it comes with major consequences. Sadly, there are many examples of this. Too many. Even ones from this very weekend but I want to close with one I always think about this time of year. Y'all know, if you know me at all, how much I love Christmas music. I listen to it all year round. But you may not know that my favorite Christmas song of all time is Oh Holy Night. I've loved it ever since I first heard it when I was a little kid. But it wasn't until a few years ago that I learned the story behind it. See, Oh Holy Night was originally a poem uh, written in French, commissioned by a French priest in 1847 because he wanted something really special for his church's Christmas mass that year. In 1855, a Boston pastor named John Sullivan Dwight stumbled across it and translated it into English. And he fell in love with the song primarily because of verse 3, which says this, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. You see, in addition to being a pastor, John Dwight was also an abolitionist, fighting to end slavery in America. He published O Holy Night, his translation of it, in his own magazine called Dwight's Journal of Music. And the song immediately took off, gaining immense popularity in the North during the Civil War. But as you can imagine, not everyone loved it, including many religious leaders. I've said before that over half of the published defenses of slavery around the time of the Civil War were actually written by Christian pastors in the South. The largest Protestant denomination in the world was founded in 1845. Do you know what brought them together? an opposition to abolishing slavery. As you can imagine, folks like that were not big fans of this song. 
Even after the Civil War was over and O Holy Night became one of the most well-known Christmas songs, not just in America, but around the world, many churches, particularly in the South, either still refused to sing it or just removed verse 3 entirely. These pastors and parishioners attended church services that were very similar to ours today. I really want you to, to get this. They read from the very same Bible we do, with the exception of O Holy Night, They sang many of the same songs we still sing. But when they finished their church services, many of them would head home to men, women, and children they considered property, not people. Some of them were members of the Klan or other white supremacist groups. They knew all about Jesus, but they didn't pursue the way of Jesus. They called themselves Christians but they did not follow Christ. And we are still dealing with the consequences of their choices today in huge ways, right? Like racial inequality in almost every sphere of our society, but also in small ways, like the fact that some of the most popular versions of O Holy Night still today don't include verse three. Sin and pain Destruction and death are the effects of claiming to be a Christian without following the way of Jesus. Because his way leads to fullness of life for all humanity. But the other way, the way of anything else, leads to the opposite. Like I said earlier, Jesus didn't come just to impart knowledge. He came to teach us how to live. He came to show us his way the way to love God and our neighbor, the way to depend on the Holy Spirit and see its fruit manifest in our lives, the way to care for the hurting and the needy and the marginalized among us, the way to fight for justice and fight against oppression. This is our calling as Christians. Y'all, it's not enough to just know better. We have to do better. So this morning, We're going to finish our gathering by singing O Holy Night together. And it will most certainly include verse three. So I'm gonna pray. And then Matt and Ava and Jared are gonna lead us. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. What an incredible six weeks it has been just diving deeply into these words. God, thank you that when you saw the myriad of problems that we were facing here on earth, you didn't just drop a big book of knowledge. You came down as a person put on flesh to teach and show us a new way of living, the way you always designed humanity to function and flourish. I pray for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who seek to be what Christian really is, a little Christ, that we would commit our very lives to following the way of Jesus. That you would enable us to do that by your Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us. Give us strength, give us courage to stand up when it's not popular. Give us the words to speak when our voices falter. God, give us the strength to keep going when we're tired. Give us everything we need to stand up for you and for your ways in this world today. I pray all this 
In Jesus' name, amen.